Well, today I have the privilege of continuing a teaching series that I started last week, a teaching series that we're simply calling Good Fights. Good Fights. Now, sometimes you hear people say, well, that was a good fight, and what they mean is it was entertaining. They mean they saw somebody get beat up and they liked it. It was really good, right? But we don't mean good fights in that sense, that it was a good fight with good techniques or that it was entertaining. We mean a good fight in that it's noble and that it is righteous, it's worthwhile, and it squares with the mission that we've been given to love God and to love people. How many of you know if you live any length of time, you're not going to be able to avoid having fights, having quarrels, mixing it up with somebody, or being at odds with an institution or an idea, you simply can't avoid it if you're living life. But Paul urges Timothy, and through the scripture, urges us to fight the what? The good fight, and minimally we can conclude that if there is a good fight to fight, there are also what? There are bad fights. And it can be hard for us to figure out which is which. It can take quite a bit of time and mentoring and discipleships to, to figure out which fights are worth fighting and which fights are the knucklehead stuff. Luckily for us, the scripture is full of wisdom and instruction on how to decide which is which. Paul says to Timothy again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, again I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. And you can be sure that these aren't the good fights that Paul's talking about here. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. And these texts, like many others, help us to understand that God doesn't want us to be just mixing it up with everybody that we see. That every fight is not a good fight. And if you search the scriptures even further, you'll discover that the most consequential fights or fight of your life won't be against another human being. The most consequential fights won't be against that hater or against that rival at work or your ex or, or somebody you co-parenting with. That's not the most consequential fight. The most consequential fight of your life won't be in the comment section on, on Facebook or Instagram. I think that the most consequential fight that we'll ever have will be the fight against the person we see when we look in the mirror. So I want to free you up today so that you might focus your gaze and your energy and your effort not on figuring out who you have to best in the world around you, but focusing on the most consequential fight, and that is the person in the mirror. You versus you. Me versus me. Me versus the version of me that doesn't want to be converted toward the image and standards of God. Me versus the me that wants to go untouched and untransformed and unchanged by the message of the God, message of, of, of the kingdom, the power of the indwelling spirit that's supposed to alert us to sin, make us more aware of God's voice, move us in the direction toward transformation and sanctification, my fight, the most consequential fight, will be against me. 
And so I'm calling this message this morning, The Fight of Your Life. It'll be the most consequential fight, and I think it's a fitting text to engage, a fitting subject on Baptism Sunday. Would you meet me in, the, in your Bibles in Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9, the fight of your life. You versus you. Me versus me. And while you find that, there, by, by the way, there's Bibles on the edges of your rows. You can also feel free to interact with the scriptures on your mobile devices. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. The fight of your life. While you find Luke 9, let me pray. Joe, can you grab me a, a, a handkerchief, please? So, Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this opportunity to gather again among your people, the company of the saints, and to engage your word. I thank you for this occasion to baptize those who have made decisions to follow you, decisions to uh, take seriously what you say to us in the scripture. And I pray, Father, that this would be an occasion where we would examine ourselves and engage this really good, this really necessary, this really consequential fight this morning, the fight against our sinful selves. So come, Holy Spirit, would you put power on these words you've given me to speak? Would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your life might shine through? We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said... Amen. Luke chapter 9, I'm going to start at verse 21. Verse 21 reads this way. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own life, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? It's a good question. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. And so this is a really important interaction Jesus is having with his disciples. He's had many of these over the course of his life with them. You'll find many interactions like this in the gospels if you read the first four books of the New Testament. And there's a lot going on in chapter nine here and I'm assigning it as homework Uh, for extra reading this week. But Jesus, in this chapter, he sends out the 12 disciples, the 12 12 apostles to do ministry and to get their feet wet doing ministry. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is one of his famed miracles. And Peter, in this chapter, makes his famed declaration that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus is very pleased that Peter's finally starting to get it. A lot's happening And then we get to this small section of scripture, and it is a fitting text, I believe, for the series that we're in, an even more fitting text for the occasion of baptisms this morning. And some of you have come in today, 
and you're on the roster to be baptized because you're at a point of decision because you may be engaged with this text or at least the truth in this text and you've come to a point of decision where you realize, I give up. I surrender. Jesus be the Lord of my life. I also believe if history is any indication in a room this size that there will be some here today who didn't come to get wet, who didn't come to make a decision, you didn't necessarily come to be baptized, but you might be moved by the Spirit. You might, like, this might be the culminating moment where you discover that you've been fighting against God's will for your life, and you might make a decision. You're wondering, man, can I get saved today? The answer is yes. Could I be baptized today? Absolutely. You said, but I didn't bring any clothes. We got you. We always have a stash of clothes around the other side of this wall. Anything you need for any size, let there be no excuse as we lean in today because this is really, really important, right? So there are three things that I see in this faithful text. As we engage or are awakened to a greater awareness to the fight of our life, the most consequential fight of our life, we interact with this text today, and there are three important things that stand out in this short text. As Jesus gives us this invitation to, uh, to, to, da- to die to ourselves and to suffer in, o- in, in, in obedience to God's will, there are three things I see. The first is that Jesus goes first. Sure, he's inviting us toward death and suffering. And, and I wonder sometimes, Jesus, like, if you really want us to fill these churches up, uh, uh, maybe we can nix the death talk. Um, and maybe we can figure out a different way to say it, or maybe you can lower the bar. Maybe there could be something that's more inviting, maybe like, I don't know, candy or bunnies or something. But death, he insists on the death talk. He insists on the suffering talk. But what brings me great comfort is Jesus goes first. We're invited to take this deep dive into what God has for us, to willfully lay down our lives, but Jesus goes first. Verse 21, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was, and he continues, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders and leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he will ultimately be killed. Anybody want to sign up? Thank you, my son. Um, But I'm so grateful that Jesus doesn't send us toward anything. He takes us there. Jesus doesn't send us toward anything. He leads us there. Jesus doesn't point up the road toward the trouble, toward the chaos, toward the sacrifices. Say, if go up there and and turn that corner, and good luck. Rather, he says, come on, let's go. He says, come with me. Watch how I do it. I'll go before you. And I can't begin to tell you how in the grand scheme of the salvation talk, Now, in the grand scheme of the gospel message, I can't even begin to impress upon you how significant this fact 
is. That Jesus, among many other things, is a real leader. See, some people, they're just in charge. And some people are leaders. If you had just one job in your life, you'd know this to be true. Some folks are just in charge. They aren't leading anybody anywhere, but maybe to another job <laughs> or to HR somewhere, right? But Jesus is a real leader. One of my favorite books on leadership is a book called uh, Master Leaders. It's a book by uh, George Barna. Uh, and, you know, I'm always trying to grow as a leader, so I'm constantly listening to leadership podcasts and doing professional development, but I keep coming back to this book over and over because it's so full of uh, wisdom and truth, and it helps me and challenges me as a leader. And so George Barna, who is known by many as a Christian pollster and studies trends and stuff within the church, he, he found himself at this conference with, with, the, with some of the best leaders from around the world. And rather than miss an opportunity to pick their brains for all this wisdom, he has all these interviews with these people, I think, in the, like, the green room at this conference. And the fruit of that was this book. And so one of my favorite uh, inter- uh, chapters on this book is the chapter on uh, uh, John Ashcroft, who's a former attorney general, uh, former governor, U.S. senator. And Ashcroft says this. He said, leadership is the identification of noble goals and objectives. It is the pursuit of those goals and objectives with such intensity that others are drawn into the process. He continues, the difference between a con man and a leader is that the con man can talk people into pursuing the goals at a greater level of intensity than himself. One final quote from that section, Ashcroft says, I've discovered that leadership is really the ability to get people with different personalities and different value sets to agree on what's important and to together move forward. It's the ability to get different kind of folks from all different kinds of walks of life to agree on what's important. And if you've ever led five people, you know that's hard. And once you've agreed on what's important to move forward, does this not describe our Savior? Does this not describe the ministry of the gospel And I believe that this is such a great starting point because Jesus says up front, there's not any bait and switch. He says up front, there are real costs associated with following me. There are real costs associated with being a real Christian. There are real costs. It's expensive. I'm going to suffer terrible things. I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the priests and the teachers of the religious law. I will ultimately be killed. There are real costs. There are social costs. Folk not going to like you if you're doing this right. I'm suspicious of somebody that everybody likes. There's social costs. There are going to be relational costs to following Jesus. There are going to be, if you do it right, financial costs. There are going to be career costs. 
you might find yourself, as many of our brothers and sisters who do ministry overseas and really hostile places toward the gospel, they're a real, like, it can affect your freedom. It can affect your very natural life. Jesus says, I'm going to die behind this. The disciples, they always seem real confused. They don't get it. Even when Jesus actually dies, they still seem really confused. And I often wonder, just why is it that they, 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 they just seem so confused? They just wouldn't accept it. But the more I turn this over in my mind, the more I might consider that if I think that maybe my Savior, if, if, if in my mind I reject the idea that he will suffer, then maybe, maybe I won't suffer. Maybe if we lower the bar for our leader, then maybe we can lower it for ourselves. Maybe if we file down this hard, blunt edge of truth-telling that Jesus does over and over and over, he's always shaking the tree. He's always trying to figure out who's loose. He's always trying to figure just who's around for the fish and the loaves. And whenever he wants to shake the tree, he starts talking about death. He starts talking about the cost. He starts talking about suffering to see who's going to still be hanging on. And Jesus says, in essence, if you've got something better to do, go do it. If you find something that's going to pay greater dividends than eternal life with me, go do it. I'll wait. Jesus says there's cause. And, and there's, no, there's, no, there's no sales concerning saving faith. There are no coupons in the backs of your Bibles. There's no great value version of saving faith. There's no knockoff version. You understand what I'm saying? I remember growing up, my parents came off their jobs to plant churches, and all of a sudden we start buying the like Aldi brand of things. This was back before Aldi was bougie and like, People were shopping. Now, now we're going to Aldi. People got poodles and fur coats. I'm like, what happened in here? <laughs> Back in the day, Aldi is where you went when you had more month than money, right? And my mother, bless her heart, she would say, these, these nacho cheese tortilla chips taste the same as they, they don't taste any different than Doritos. Chips are always out. This, these, this package of cookies that just says yummy cookies on it. <laughs> it tastes the same. But as soon as we started getting a little bit of money, we didn't buy the yummy cookies. Because the good stuff, it costs what it costs. It's $4 a box for a reason. The good stuff doesn't go on sale. The quality stuff doesn't go on sale. It costs what it costs. And Jesus doesn't pull the old bait and switch. He said, it costs what it costs, but I'm going to pay first. I'm going to go first. That's super important. Second thing that happens in the sex, I, I believe, is that Jesus, he gives us the key. He gives us the key. He gives us the cheat code. He gives us 
the answer key in the back of the book. If you're trying to figure out how to win at life, if you're trying to figure out how to win at this good fight, this most consequential fight, he gives us the answer key. Verse 23, he says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You might want something deeper than that. It's not deeper than that. It's not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. He gives us the key. And actually, I believe the NLT version, the way it's worded, can, can file off the hard edge of this powerful truth. In case you haven't figured it out, Jesus is talking about crucifixion. Carry your cross, but eventually you're going to have to get up on it. And as we approach Good Friday, and we'll talk about what it meant for Christ to suffer and die, to get up on the cross, to die a brutal death. Crucifixion, among other things, was brutal. It was humiliating. There is no way you can keep your dignity and be crucified. There's no way you can have any sort of swag or any kind of, you know, you're naked, you're bloody, folks are spitting on you. Nobody looks good on a cross. Nobody's in charge and in control and in demand on a cross. This is an invitation into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him or her to do what? Come and die. Come and die. Now, this is particularly meaningful to us on Baptism Sunday because you know, I jokingly said we're having a pool party, but this is symbolic of a watery grave where in which you willfully come to the water's edge, you willfully get in, and you willfully go under. And this is a, a, an image, a picture, a demonstration of what's supposed to be happening on the inside of you where you go under you are buried, and you, the old you dies. And you emerge from the water a new person. Now, if you're just playing around with this, if you're not serious about this, all you're going to get today is wet. But if this is really a picture, an external outworking of what's already happened on the inside of you, then you are dying to your old self and being raised to new life in Christ. The thing that makes this most challenging is we don't go, you need to be saved. Have a couple of strong deacons, bring him over here, let's baptize him. <laughs> in fact, I've entertained that with some of my more difficult parishioners. Just have a couple people go grab him up, <laughs> hold him under there until you don't see any more bubbles and then bring him up. <laughs> and if you're wondering, who are the difficult parishioners? 
It might be you. I'm just mostly kidding. But the challenging part about all this is you have to walk your hips up to this pool and get in. You have to pick up your cross and carry it. You have to allow yourself to be hoisted upon, excuse me, hoisted upon that cross and be nailed to it. In the good fight imagery, you have to engage the fight against your sinful flesh. You have to do it. We can't make you do it. Mama can't make you do it. Daddy can't make you do it. Your Sunday school teacher can't make you do it. Your pastor can't make you do it. Like, you have to do it. You have to engage it. This is the fight of your life. This is the best decision you'll ever make. This is the most consequential thing you'll ever engage in. I don't care if you're three or 300. This is what it is. You have to do it. And it's a battle. It's a fight because your sin doesn't want to die. That's not personal enough. My sin doesn't want to die. Look, don't get this twist. Don't let this podium and these lights and these books, don't let this stuff fool you. I'm in a fight for my life. Just ask that woman sitting right there. I got some stuff that I need to deal with. That's how I know you do. I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be a Christian, and I still have to wrestle with things. I know you do. Paul says, the stuff I want to do, I don't do. And the stuff I want to do, the stuff I need to do, the stuff I know is right to do, I can't seem to do it consistently. This is one of the pillars of our faith. This is the Apostle Paul. And on one hand, it's perplexing that a guy of that spiritual stature can't seem to get it together. But on the other hand, it's comforting because maybe there's hope for me. But I got to want it. I got to lean in. Now, don't hear me talking about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is a work of the Spirit. Nobody can even come to the water's edge unless the Spirit is first drawing them. And the work of sanctification, the work of being transformed, is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a daily struggle. Jesus says, crucify yourself daily. This isn't a one and done. Back in 78, I came up and I shook the preacher's hand. I dipped my toe in the water and now I'm good. No, 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 no. Every single day, every hour, every minute. And it's a good thing that this is a work of the Spirit because on my own, I can't do it. On your own, you can't do it. It is a battle, but Jesus gives us he gives us the key. Give up your own way if you want to win. Carry your cross daily. And die to yourself. Third thing I see in this text, final thing, is that Jesus offers us both a warning and a promise. He offers us a warning and a promise. 
concludes this faithful discourse with a helpful warning and a comforting promise, but don't rush past the warning. The promise is sweet, uh, but don't miss the warning. Here's the warning, verse 24. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. I want to let that just sit in the room. If you try to hang on to your life, you will most certainly lose it. And I'm glad our student ministry, uh, our students are in today. Every other Sunday, the students are in with us, and they're serving all over the building. You see them serving on worship and back in tech. And I'm glad our students are in today because if you get this early, life doesn't get easy, but it gets easier. Your life is drawn into sharper focus because Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. Now, I realize that this is countercultural, like, this goes against everything that, the, that, that, that conventional wisdom teaches us. You want to be successful, you've got to, you've got to go out there and make it happen. You've got to go out and grab life by the horns. Listen, you do you. Live your best life and let everybody else go. Do you. You're at the center of your life. Make as much money as you can. Have the most rich and satisfying relationships. Hop from person to person, bed to bed. Do you. If you're a mover and a shaker, if you're a real winner, if you can make it happen. You are in charge of your destiny. Go out and live life. Jesus says the opposite. If you try to be the architect, the conductor of your life, you will most certainly lose it. This is spiritual. This is divine. There's nothing earthly about this. He offers another warning in verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Put simply, if you don't want to check for me now, I won't check for you later. If you don't wish to stand up and be counted, stand up and go public with your faith right now, then on the day of judgment, and let me just say, there will be a day of judgment. Maybe you haven't heard it. Maybe you haven't heard it in a while that one day each and every one of us will stand before the God that made us and we will give an account for how we live this life, how we stewarded our relationships and our money and our sexuality. We will give an account on that faithful day. And on that day, Jesus says, if you stood up for me, if you weren't ashamed of me while you were down here, I will welcome you on that day. But if you failed to do so while you had the time and while you had the chance, I won't recognize you on that day. That's heavy, right? Some of us need to reckon with that. Some of you need to reckon with that because you haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus. You haven't made a decision yet to surrender your life to him. You will not or you have not yet taken up your cross. Others of you, perhaps you have, 
but you don't really want anybody to know. You don't want to invite somebody to church because you know what they will inevitably say is the dreaded question that no Christian ever wants to hear somebody utter. You go to church? (laughs) You go to church? What kind of church you go to that they let you come? So there's kind of a spectrum to this. Those who haven't yet received, those who haven't been convinced and haven't uh, made the decision, and yet others of us who haven't come fully in. We haven't gone public with this thing. We don't want anybody to know because our life doesn't really match what we say we believe. There's a warning. But following this warning is a promise. And the promise is really sweet. The promise is, if you give up your life, if you lay your life down, that is precisely how you keep it. Don't make any natural sense. But it's the promise. Jesus himself embodies that promise, surrendering himself unto death on a cross. And where is he now? Resurrected and reigning. Because he surrendered his life. He gave up his life. The promise is sweet. The promise about, you know, folks being ashamed uh, of Christ and him not recognizing them on the last day, it's implied, it's not explicitly stated in the text, but the reverse of that is if you acknowledge Christ here on earth, if you come out of the shadows and go public with this thing, then he'll be glad to welcome you on that final day. The promise is clear. You gotta give up your life in order to gain it. And if you acknowledge Christ on earth, he'll acknowledge you on that final day. The promise is sweet. It turns out that this fight against your flesh is gonna be really hard. If you've been saved for two or three days, you know this is true. Turns out that this fight is necessary. There's no way around it. There's no other version of saving faith. There's no route in. There's no other way in. But it turns out that it's so worth it. It is eternally rewarding. That is to say there are eternal consequences. It's permanent. Eternal consequences turning your face away from the message that you're hearing today. And so I'm mustering every ounce of evangelical authority, every ounce of pastoral influence to employ you today to hear the word of the Lord. But if you're far from Jesus today, if you're spinning your wheels, expending your energy, you've got your ladder up against the wrong wall, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. It's the only way you'll have the life that he imagined for you. It's the only way you'll have eternal life which starts here now and forever in the next. Turn to Jesus. And those of you who've 
Surrender your life to Jesus, but you're struggling with your faith. Look, look around you. You're in good company. But there is a standard. There is a bar. There is a cost. And the cost, luckily for all of us, isn't a percentage based on how cool you are or how good looking you are. We all pay the same cost. We all pay everything. We all have to empty our pockets, liquidate our assets in order to engage. We all pay the same price. And worship team, you can make your way up. I wonder where you are today. I know a lot of this was a little bit heavy. Who are we kidding? It was a lot bit heavy. And I'm not in the least bit bothered by deep, pensive silence. Come to see that it's necessary sometimes, particularly when you're dealing with consequential, eternal matters. Some of us just need to sit in this moment for a moment and reflect on your decisions, on where you're passions are on where your allegiances lie and look and see who's really in the conductor seat of your life who's sitting on the throne of your heart and if you've been engaging this fast for any length of time it's easier to see what's sitting on the throne of your heart it's easier to see who is your lord what is your lord you can't give up cheetos Imagine a Cheeto bag sitting on the throne of your heart. You can't give up TV for 30 days. You can't push away the plate or say no to coffee or that toxic person or that toxic relationship or that Netflix series. If you can't do it, better yet, if you won't do it, just imagine that thing sitting on the throne of your heart. You said, why is he so, take it easy. Look, our, 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 our eternal lives are at stake. And so I ask you again, where are you today? In a moment, at least three candidates will take to these waters and go public with the decision that they've already made. My suspicion, though, is that there are more. And we're not a church that uh, tries to manipulate you and tries to run up the numbers. You know, because if, if I gotta make you take it, I gotta make you keep it. But my suspicion, my hunch, is that there are people here today who haven't made a decision. You've come in today, you're tired, you're carrying all kinds of ill-fitting things uh, because you're trying, to, you're trying to keep your life and you're losing it in the process. And this appeal that Christ is making to give up your life so that you might 
gain it intrigues you. The Spirit is drawing you toward decision. We're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision. Others of you are here today, and maybe you've been going to church for a very long time. Or maybe for a couple of years or whatever. You're not new to church. But you, when you consider what the costs are, what Christ requires, you realize that you fall short. Maybe you've drifted. Maybe something happened. Maybe someone happened. Maybe the circumstances of life have conspired against you and have drawn you away from the things of God, have drawn you away from devotion, have drawn you away from the rich and satisfying life that Jesus wants to give you in him. And you're at a point of decision today, and you want to make a decision. And more than a decision, you want to make a commitment to be baptized today. Listen, don't do it out of compulsion. Don't be swept up in the moment. But do so only if you really want to. And so in a moment, I'm going to dismiss the baptism candidates that are already signed up. But Ramon Mayo, Ramon, would you wave your hand, please? All the way on the edge here. If there's somebody who wants to surrender their life to Jesus today or somebody who wants to make a recommitment and solidify that commitment through baptism you were to talk to Ramon as we continue to worship here. And there's some extra clothes. We have extra towels. And we'll give you an opportunity to take that next step. I want to pray for us, though, because I think this is a really holy moment. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, do your work in this place. I know you're working on hearts. I know you're challenging. I know you're convicting. I know you're drawing. And so, Lord, I ask that by your power and by your spirit, you would help people come to the decisions that they need to come to, like in this moment. Lord, we know that tomorrow was not promised. We know that there is an urgency and a weight to getting it right in this moment and not leaving the same way that they came in. So, Father, I ask that you would impress upon your people to make a move, to do what they got to do, and say yes to you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.